Crash Course in History, Session 4, Rabbi Blyweiss, we are now launching into the period called the Shoftim, the Judges. Uh, the Jews have now entered Eretz Israel. you remember 14 years, the Mishkan was in Gilgal, followed by Mishkan moves to Shiloh, Vau Shiloh, they came to Shiloh, and the Mishkan's there, and the Alila Regal's there, and that's where they come for the, uh, for, 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 uh, for the important things, for important times of years. It's going to be the capital of the Jewish people for 369 years, count Okay, and, and at this point, Bamos, we said yesterday, are prohibited. Now, um, what we see in this period, and it is, a, it is a wholly elevated period, we see the first time in history that the Jewish people start dabbling in what the Pasu calls Avodazara, idolatry. But it's not, according to many of the opinions, Rafa Miller is very strong in this, it's not really, it's not really grade A of Odizara. It's the first instance, though, that they're starting to learn from their enemies. You remember that they never quite did the job of kicking out all those pesky Canaanites, and the Canaanites had absolutely um, idolatrous practices. <clears throat> um, so when you're around certain people, this is the third time in one day, Daniel, you're hearing such an idea, you're influenced by the people in your surroundings. Right? I refer you to the Rambam Hilchos Deos, and when you find that you're influenced by that, the Kanani, they dabble in it. So the Jews started dabbling it too, as Ruben Margolio says, they fell into it almost offhandedly. Meaning they were from, they were Yerei Shemayim. They kept mitzvahs, they went to shul, they learned taira, they did everything one would expect of Shomer Shabbos people, but they had a getchka in the backyard. A little, uh, whatever it is, the Yiddish word for a little, little uh, something that they shouldn't have had. Something? Like a Bodhisattva. But it wasn't real, it wasn't serious, and they only had it because that's what the neighbors had. It was sort of like from people only tele- televisions, or, or something, something along those lines. It was something that was not really defensible on a Torah level, but people do it anyway. Kind of an idea. So that was, that was uh, the way many people understood. Not, not um, just all, uh... There is a cycle, anybody learned Sefer Shoftim here? Okay, so you're familiar. There is a cycle as you go through the period of the Shoftim where they would serving, they'd be serving Hashem. And then they never got rid of the Canaanites, so they started being influenced by the Canaanites around them. And then they um, were delivered to the hands of their enemies. And then they cried out to Hashem in their despair. Their enemies are persecuting them, and Hashem would send them a, appropriately enough, Shofet. Because it's just the period of the Shofim, right? So this is the judges who are coming to save. They came and they redeemed the people. And there was a war. It was, it was a time of wars and struggles. Um, and then the Shofim would come and redeem them and they'd be saved and they would be fine. And then they'd slip back into the Canaanite ways and the cycle would repeat itself many, many times in this, in this generally very positive period. Um, the Gemara Sukkot tells us that Yezer has the view that every single Shavit produced one Shofet. It's actually a trick. Um, there are few that we have a list of the Shoftim, and there are few tribes that don't seem to be represented there. So it's a, it's a hard statement to explain, and the Mepharshim tried to. What, he's, what he does suggest, though, is reflects the relative harmony that existed in Kuala Yisrael, because it was almost as a rotation. Like, the tribes were saying to one another, you first, no, you first. Because these were, with, with the exception of the slight, and again, it's not idolatrous, it was just kind of slipping into the ways of the pagans around them. It was, that was the one fault of this time, but the time was an incredibly exalted time, and it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around it, because the Jews were living at a very high level. Hashiva shoftenu kvarishonah. 
Where's that from? You know that line? Is that familiar vaguely? Well, it's in the Shmona Sreimi Adnur. Do that. Very good. Return us to the time of the judges. That's one shot. Rabbi Vinkimelik suggests that shot. As, as we've explained, that this was such an exalted time. The Jews were living, they were, they were le- leading Torah, they were keeping mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. It was very much, as the Torah intended, life to be, with certain exceptions. We didn't have a king. We didn't have a king in the day. The Pesukim constantly reminded us that. We had Shoftim. And on a certain level, we were better without a king. That was, that was the nature of the time. The... Um, Singular qualification to be a shofit, with one exception. There's one turkey in the batch, but the shofit team were, uh, were, were on an extremely high level, a transcendent level. The qualification was merit. It was a pure, do you know what I mean by, when I say meritocracy? The cream of the crop rose to the top, and the best of the best became the, the leader of the Jews. Even in a, sl- a slightly lower level generation, Rashi mentions this in the, in the Parsha, in the Torah, uh, in Parsha Shoftim, he mentions that Shmuel, the Dairel, Shmuel was the highest one of the later of the Shoftim, Shmuel's counted as a judge. Um, he and his generation, he's one of the greatest Jews of all time, is equivalent to Yiftach, another earlier judge in his generation. Yiftach was nothing in comparison with Shmuel, it was at a much lower level, but even so, he was the cream of the crop. And it was a pure meritocracy today, who becomes powerful and most democratic uh, societies in most in most and any in any kind of society, it's the old political hacks who rise to the top, backstab everybody, and manage to elbow their way into power. They take photo op pictures, they they kiss babies, they do all kinds of other uh, weird things, and then they become. But not in these, not in this time. This is an exalted time when the people who were the firmest, most knowledgeable, the role models of society, they they rose in the ranks. And uh, so that is, I'm trying to paint a picture here. The nation. There's, there's, there's one negative shofet. Anybody know his name? We'll get to him soon enough. It was the illegitimate son of Gidon by the name of Avimelech. But he's, he was the only one who insinuated himself into power. Everybody else emerged naturally. And then, you can't talk about the period of the shoftim without talking about the worst phase of the shoftim, which is a story that's told at the very end of the book of shoftim. You, you learned it, Bernice? You're familiar with this? It starts in the 17th chapter of shoftim. Not to put you on the spot, but you happen to know it's referred to by this as the Pilegish Migiva. You know what we for anybody? The concubine from Giva. Giva is identified biblically as a place not far from here, walking distance here, but don't walk there because it's an hostile air village called Jib. Jib is what they identify as biblical Giva. Uh, and um, although that may be Givon, and Jib may be actually the place up there that might be Giva Shaul. In any case, all kinds of questions in archaeology. Um, they, um, there was a whole series of, a whole horrific story that the last chapters of Shoftim tell. Uh, that it spirals out of control. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the man with his concubine. They finally get a place to stay, similar to uh, a story that's very reminiscent of, of experience of the angels going to Stone and visiting with Lot. Uh, but his concubine is taken out by a, bunch of, by a bunch of bad guys who then bring her back after they have their way with her. And the man, when he receives his concubine back, does the logical thing under the circumstances. He, well, he takes her body and cuts it into 12 pieces and sends it to one of the tribes. Each, each, each tribe gets a piece of her body. Um, that's unclear in the tzukim, but you know the, you know the story exactly. And then it leads, the whole thing is so horrific that it leads to civil war, the first official civil war that Jews will ever have between, um, all, between all the tribes and one tribe. Who's the one tribe that singled out? Because it was in their, it was in their midst that this, this, um, this, this uh, shanda, this, this, this terrible situation took place. Binyamin. 
and they, they fight Binyamin, and initially Binyamin is successful, is victorious, and then the tides turn, and Kach Baruch sends the Mashkach Pratis, and they almost wipe out an entire tribe of the Jews. And then the end of the story is no less shock. In the beginning of the story, it talks about the surviving 400 plus 200 men of Binyamin, and the sole survivors of the tribe, who they then have to find Shiduchim for. And on Tuba'av, they find the girls in the vineyards of Shiloh down below, and they're able to find that's one solution, there's another solution too. But the story reads as, 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 um, as shocking, and according to Victor Miller's reading of it, it's to single out that this is the one aberration of history, that in the period of Shoftim, this is the one black eye. And he says, what does it come to teach us? A fascinating shot, and I think a very compelling one. It's not the only shot in the story, but I'm, I'm giving history in broad strokes here. So um, his way of saying it is that what the Jews perceived in their midst, they were leading an ideal kind of life, an ideal society. When they saw the seeds of sin and of misbehavior start to creep out, they were scandalized. And their reaction was extreme. We've got to stamp it out, as it says in the Torah repeatedly, especially in Sefer Devarim, if evil comes in your midst, you have to stamp it out. Otherwise, like a germ, it becomes infectious and it spreads. And what he says, therefore, what we see in the extreme behavior of the Jews in this whole episode of the Pelegish Megivah is the fact that the Jewish people would not tolerate evil in their midst. And it's their genuine L'shem Shemaim approach trying to root it out before it would, would rise up and swallow them. Um, from this point on, we never find in the entire history any such series of events that happened to the Jews. And it was this kind of shocking misbehavior on a global scale that infects the entire nation. Um, even though by the non-Jews all around the world, this kind of stuff is like uh, par for the course. This is daily kinds of occurrences, but among Jews not because we stamped it out. Who are some of the famous judges that you know about? Gidon, for sure. Who else? Shimshon is probably arguably the most colorful and famous. We'll talk about them. Devorah, who's the exception. Although some say the Ayel was also a Shofetis, but it's odd that there's a woman who's in power. Right? And in fact, that's the purpose. The Medrash says, why was Devorah the Shofetis? It was Hashem's doing as a Mida Kineged Nida because the enemy of the Jews in those days was a fellow by the name of Sisra. His name was Sisra, and he was a big bad guy when he. Uh, the Medrash tells us that Sisra would, um, he was the, the general of Canaan. He was so strong that when he, when he called out, the most solid walls of every building would shake and the most wild of animals would die. The only person who was unaffected by Sisra's call was Devorah herself. Uh, she, was a, she was some strong woman. And the, and the fact that um, she, he was so strong, he was a big, as a theme of our, my Gemara Shabbat this morning, big Baal Gaiva. What's Gaiva? And so he's brought down by no less than a woman as a way of showing Hashem's uh, uh, fury that you can't behave this way without being totally reduced. In fact, later on, Avimelech, we mentioned before, is actually um, a, a rock is thrown from the top of a gate by a woman, and he's so horrified at the notion that he's going to die at the hands of a woman that that should be his legacy. Everybody's going to tell the story, oh yeah, Avimelech was killed off by a woman that um, he has his arms bear actually kill him, the first recorded uh, instance of a suicide. Um, but what, sh what that showed was not misogyny. 
The Torah is not misogynist. The Torah loves women. The Torah loves men. Hashem loves all of us. It's that the woman's role is not classically associated with leadership and heroics and war. And that the fact that Devorah is the exception to the rule was, was, was deliberate to prove the rule, but not that she's a precedent. The feminists like to use her as an example of why women should be leaders. No, women are not, not designated traditionally to be leaders of the Jews. Devorah was a righteous woman, nevertheless, uh, and did, did great things for Klal Yisrael. She ruled for 40 years, um, of, of genu- except for this one initial battle with Sistra, there was generally peace and prosperity during her days. Yeah, go ahead. I know she, um, she tried dating to get her husband to leave, didn't she? She yeah. did, and she said, she said to, to Barak, her husband, she said, you should leave because the people will say that you, if, if you let me lead, even though she was the more qualified of the two, if you let me lead, uh, they'll, they'll never let you hear the end of it. She, she warns him. She was extremely tsenua. She was a modest person who, um, who uh, paskined under her tomer, under her palm tree, because it's relevant to our Gemara. She wanted to avoid the problem of yichud. Yichud being alone with a man, with, with a man in any combination. Uh, she was in a public place. Gidon was famous for a lot of reasons. He was, um, he was originally, he was called Yerubal. I mean, you know why? Test your knowledge of Shoftim. He got rid of Baal, one of the earlier kinds of pagan gods that you hear about a lot in the Torah, in the Bible. Um, and he cut down Baal, um, at least temporarily. Baal was a god, a Canaanite god. Um, Baal also means like an owner or a master. Like we refer to a woman and her Baal, her husband. But Baal is referred to here. It was a worship. They worshipped a god, a foreign god. And he cut him down. And there's a great line when he literally goes down. It was, you know, the pagans worshipped objects. It was the most nutty kind of thing. And so Gidon went and destroyed the object. And a bunch of Jews were really upset. A bunch of men, the fringe of the society, were upset and were going to come and kill Gidon. So Gidon's father comes to his defense and he says one of the great pasukim. He says, Ha'atem terivun the Baal? What, you're going to fight Baal's battle? I thought you worshipped Baal. Why should Baal need human beings to defend him against his enemies? Let Baal do the fighting. It's reminiscent of which, which famous story in the, the Medrash? Avram cutting down. Avram cutting down uh, all of his father's idols. Ha'atem terivun the Baal. When he goes off to fight Midian, he calls for Jews to volunteer, and too many Jews, to their credit, come down to volunteer, 32,000 namely, and they come down, anybody been to um, the, um, a, what's called by the Gilboa Mountains, um, Ein Charod. They come down in the Jezreel Valley, up in the in the center of Israel. They go, they they come down to Ein Charod to go fight, but there are too many men, and Hashem doesn't want so many people fighting the battle. Why not? Simple. They'll think they'll think that they won, but it's all from Hashem. Every battle in this phase of history still is being fought by Hashem. Our job: fight the Yitzhahara. Ezo Gibor, who's the true man of war. Look behind you, Miad. Somebody who controls his Yitzhahara. So Hashem doesn't want the people to think that they won the war. He said, send them away. So Gidon does this famous test. How does he, do, how does he distinguish between the men and the men? The real men? Right. He, had, he tests them by drinking water. Most of the men went down like so many dogs, and they went on their hands and knees and lapped up the water like dogs would do. 300 singled themselves out. The original three. By bringing water. When I guide here, I love this. I love to guide this area. I go there, and then as I'm, before I tell the story, I pass out cups of water that we're drinking, right? As opposed to drinking right, in, in an animalistic way. I pass the cups of water, I tell the whole story, and then I say, let's now drink a civilized toast with a bracha to Gidon, who knew how to elevate the physical to the level of the holy, right? Because that's what the people were doing. The people who got down, the different, the different explanations, the people who got down on their hands and knees, one shot was that they were a little too familiar with bowing down, and that made, that made they were suspicious of maybe worshiping idolatry. The other, the other basic shot is simpler. 
we in this world, a theme of all of history, is to, our job is to elevate the physical to the spiritual. If you put your physical, your spiritual, which is your face, down to the water, the physical, you're, you're actually doing the opposite. You're actually reducing the, what's potentially spiritual to the level of the physical. That's not our purpose in this world, right? So what do you do? The Bab of a Rebbe. The Bab of a Rebbe, one of the, one of the, one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's who survived the Holocaust, he was known for his incredibly refined ways, and he, when eating, we should all strive for this, but he was apparently meticulous, he would never lower his face to his food. Even eating soup, which is a real, which is a real feat, he always ate like this, perfectly, right? Because you don't lower yourself to the food, you, you elevate the food to yourself. That's the Jewish spirit and everything we try to do in life. And that's, these are the people who go to fight the war. The, um, interestingly, the, is, the uh, Israeli army loves Gidon because they see him as a military first. And it's kind of interesting. He does a lot of things. Uh, and it's not just the army. He's commendable in a lot of ways in the way he goes about um, fighting. He is the first, is the first instance in history of, to have Molotov cocktails or something like it. They put, they put uh, fire in a jar and they throw it. And it makes a big sound, but it doesn't really do very much. And the Midianites are all terrified by it. So the first instance of Molotov cocktails in history. Gidon is the first in a lot of a lot of areas. It's the first time that there's a night raid. What does a night raid demonstrate? Because in the in, in all previous wars in the history of life, we're always fought in the day because yeah, it's scary to fight at night. You need a lot of yira shemaim. No, guts has nothing to do with it. It's foolishness to fight in the night if you don't have a shem on your side. But if you have a shem on the side, a shem does all the fighting. The enemy is at the disadvantage because they're afraid to fight at night, but you're not because you've got a shem fighting for you. So they had the first night raids is what, that we can trace in history. Um, right? The, uh, it shows Amuna. Um, it's the first time, and this is very, the Israeli army loves this part. It's the first time where you see, uh, uh, it's not really the first time, but he says this explicitly. He says, follow me. Most commanders in war say, Charge! You guys, and good luck to you. Let us know how it works out in the end, right? But it takes a real gutsy commander to actually lead the brigades out to war. He's fearless, and again, it shows his amuna. He says, Hashem's on our side. I have nothing to fear. I'm going to go and lead the brigades. Uh, that's how he goes out. Um, and it's the first one to utilize successfully psychological warfare. Because they, 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 they make this loud noise and they have these big models of cocktails and the, all of the camp, and they're in the tens of thousands in the Midianite camp, they go fleeing. They're terrified of these measly 300 uh, soldiers who are fighting not even with, with, with major weapons. And they win. Uh, they're, they're victorious. Um, and then they want to turn Gidon and his, his vest, his aphod, into an, into an object of worship, and he won't let them. He knows the, the penchant that all human beings have of tur turning somebody uh, that you love and you revere into an idol, and he, he avoids it. Uh, it becomes a snare to them later on in later generations. He has a lot, a lot, a lot of kids. The worst one is Avimelech, who I mentioned before, uh, who is from an illegitimate wife. And um, he's the only leader to seize the power in an otherwise very illustrious 400 years of Jewish history. In Ishi Not in Ishi Torah, Pilegish. Pilegish, which is not the same elevation. It's not Osir. In these days, a concubine, concubinage was permitted. Nowadays, sorry if I'm letting anybody down by telling you this, the post can say, with what opinion? Rav Yaakov Evans says that a pilegish is Mozart, but nobody agrees with that. Uh, I don't think so. Nice try, though. Um, in any case, uh, no pilegishim for you. Uh, and there was once upon a time, I mean, they, they translated as mistress, it's incorrect, because a pilegish is a low-level wife. There is a kind of uh, kiddushin ceremony, a kind, of, a kind of thing. Anyway, don't even think about it. Not halakhically acceptable. What's the law? Laws no pilegish. But once upon a time it was acceptable. Abimelech was the son of such a person. Uh, and that's it. Yiftach rules for only six years. 
The story is he made a really bad movie. He's going to fight Amon, and he says, "If I'm successful, please Hashem, the first thing that comes out of my house oh, towards right. me, I'll offer to you as a sacrifice, assuming that it would be a I don't know, a sheep, maybe a cow, a goat's fine, maybe even a turtle dove." Uh, no. Uh, she comes dancing out to his, his daughter. And um, it's not so clear what happens. The machlokis, whether he actually sacrificed her or, or killed her or just she never got married is one shot. But whatever it was, it was a terrible mistake because all he had to do, what do you do if you make a disastrous, stupid nedder like that? And stupidity, I should tell you, is usher. Uh So what happens if you, got the reference? Uh, the, what happens if you do something stupid like that and make a dumb netter? Don't do it, by the way. You're, you should, the post can say you shouldn't make nedarim as a general rule. What do you do if you make a bad netter? Pretty posh it. Hatar nedarim. Now, this was a big time netter. It needed a big time annulment. Who was the Kohen Gadol in these days? Still? Hold over from the, from the Torah still? Great man by the name of? Pinchas. Pinchas is still the Kohen Gadol. Grandson of, uh, the, the grandson of Aaron, the son of Elazar. That's Pinchas, he's still there. And the Gemara Tainis tells us a very unusual thing, and they were both great men, so don't read this, on this at the face verses. Always when you're learning Tanakh, you, you can't see the face uh, pshat. As the, 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 these are great people who made mistakes, but it's not what it appears. Pinchas didn't go to Yiftach, because he assumed that the Shofet comes to the Kohen Gadol. Yiftach didn't go to Pinchas, because he, he assumed the Kohen Gadol should go to the Shofet. And they neither went to the other one, and then, so nothing happened, and they're both punished. The, uh, the Gemara tells us that um, Pinchas lost some of his Ruach HaKodesh, at least temporarily. Yiftach developed a strange disease that meant that uh, he would travel around Eretz Yisrael, and uh, gradually limbs would fall off of him until he finally lost all of his body. Not a, not a happy fate. Um, Ivtsan. Ivtsan comes from Beit Lechem, but you probably don't know of him as Ivtsan. I'm not doing this, not comprehensive. I'm not going through all the Shokti, I'm going through some of the famous ones. Ivtsan, you probably know by a different name. Anybody know? Ooh, you need work on Tanakh. No? Nobody knows Ivtsan? That's really bad. Somebody here has to know Ivtsan. No? Bernie, you don't know Ivtsan? No? Not a clue? You otherwise known as Boaz. Who's Boaz? Married to Ruth. 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 Uh, he's got a couple names, Barak or Lapidut. Right. Right. No, Ibtsan is Boaz. Um, Sefer Rus takes place in this very exalted period. She is the emblem of, of the ultimate convert. She, Rus, and Yisro are called the Rosh Hagerim. The heads of the converts, they're, they're, they're the role models, they're the, uh, they're, 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 they're the, they're the uh, exemplars um, and, uh, in terms of every, every quality. But Sefer Rus really is a beautiful Sefer. It shows how these people lived with the Shem. Those of us who are learning the Gemara this morning, we, this morning we, we were doing the Gemara on the top of Lamed Aleph, Amud Aleph. Anybody else holding there? We're all learning Kiddushim here, no? Right? So why do you wear a kippah? Why, why does Rav Hunabar Rabbi Yeshua, Bray the Rabbi Yeshua, wear a kippah on his head? Right? Shechina Lamalim Roshi. The Shechina is above my head. People li- live their lives every day. No, not every day, every hour. Not every hour, every minute walking in Hashem, and you see this tangibly, I urge you to go look, there are only four chapters, look through Sefer Rus, one of the five Megillahs, look through the book of Ruth, and you'll see that they, um, they're all godly, everybody. So just a c- couple of illustrations. Naomi hears the famines ended, but she says, that because Hashem pakaris amo, she says, all from Hashem. Ruth says, may Hashem deal with me even severely if anything but death separates. She says this later to, Boa, to, to, Noah, to Nomi. Um, 
Boaz, when he goes out to greet the reapers in the field, when they're about to harvest the field, he says, Hashem imachem, a famous greeting. We learn how to greet each other from this. We learn a lot of things from Sefer Rus. Um, Yichud is there as a discussion. Oh, we learn, we learn um, the whole, the whole uh, Yibum is that Yavama is there. A lot, a lot of discussions. He says to them, Hashem imachem, and they even respond. These are the salt of the earth, the lowly peasants working in the field. And their response is, the, is Yivarech Hashem. Hashem should bless you. Everything was Hashem. That's how these people thought and spoke and lived. Halavai. Right, Hashem Yucham, based on this Pasuk in Rus. I'm saying, but shouldn't we say that when we're about to go to the store and buy a chocolate bar too? But do we? Right? These are, we da me, you should know who you're standing in front of every second of the day. And that's how, that was characteristic of this period. period. All right, go ahead. Isn't Orpah typically still Jewish? So these women converted when they married Ruth's, if you know the story of, of Ruth's, um, these women converted, they married the sons. The sons made mistakes, that's why they all perished. Uh, and both Ruth and Orpah were sisters, son of Eglon, who was a big bad guy who I skipped in the earlier Shulchan period, who um, really were on a very high level, both of them, Ruth and, Ruth and Orpah. And uh, they deeply desired to serve Hashem and in a life of Kedusha, that's why they stuck by Naomi. And even when Naomi tries to push them away, they, they persist. They say, we're not leaving you. And Naomi continues and continues, and they didn't have shoes on their feet, they had nothing. And um, finally, Orpah relents, and she's with a very heavy head, very, very heavy heart. She, uh, she turns away, and she goes, and the Medrash says, that night, that, oh, you fade that night. Yeah. Uh, I fade that one. Well, I don't really want to go into particulars, because I can't really say it, but the Medrash does. If you really want prurient uh, information, the Medrash doesn't hold back. It talks about something about a hundred uh, men, and there's a dog in the mix, yeah, too. Yeah, hundred women Dalmatians. No, no, man, and then a dog also. Yeah. Uh, everything. So that when, when and it's, a, it's a great, Rosh Chaim Shmulevitz has a fantastic Borka look at the Sikhus Musser in, the, in, the, um, in Parshish Emor. He says that the person, a person who loses his identity, if he's holding by an intense, listen to the concept, it's so profound. <coughs> we find this throughout history. If a person's holding by intense Kedusha, but they leave Torah, they leave the discipline of Torah, they fall to the same level, the same intensity of Tumah. Okay. And we find the opposite is true. Some of the great villains of history had some of the great heroes as their descendants. Meaning when you have that intense personality, right, it's potential, it's conducive to having intensity. The opposite of love can't be if I ask the question. Indifference. Indifference. Hate and love are very, very close for the same logic. Right? Who did Sistra had a very holy descendant? We just mentioned Sistra who divorified, who was his descendant? None other than Rabbi Akiva himself. Bnei Haman, the descendants of Haman, the Gemara Gitin tells us, learned Torah and Bnei, taught Torah in Bnei Brak. Um, Sancheriv's descendants from Shmaya and Abtalion, and a long, long list like this. From intensity goes intensity. That's why when I, I, I told my wife this when our kids start to go out in the late, after, late hours of the afternoon, I say, but think about, think about it this way. It'd be so much worse if they were bland kids. It's so much better that they're exciting right now, even exciting sometimes in the negative ways, because that means they have more oomph, more potential for something. Right? Bland breeds bland, I think. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. What the descendants of uh, Amalek? Oh, um, no, the ancestors were Amalek. Amalek, and that needs to be destroyed. So it's ironic. Go look at that. Go look up Chazal in that Gemara and Gitim. 
and I, like anything I throw out here, this is, um, what we're doing here is history's greatest hits. If I say anything, I hope maybe one thing here or there that is in any way interesting to you and you want to pursue it further, send me an email, manashablyways at gmail.com, send me an email and I'll give you all the sources, you go, you go work it out. That's part of what I'm doing here. Since I can't teach you this year, I'm not teaching the 130 class series, I'm trying to at least whet your appetite and get you excited about different aspects. You should look things up, go, Ashi. Uh, to be fair, uh, the whole Hashem... Why should we want to be fair? I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, the, 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 even the back when... Uh, even the non-Jews did it. The word goodbye comes from God be with you. God be with you. That's right. Tell me that Orpah's Jewish and that her son... So, Orpah's son was named... Orpah's son was named Goliath. And, and David is the great-grandson of Rus. So the two sisters will meet up symbolically again at some time in the future when David confronts Goliath. And what you have, you have the epitome, you have Orpah who in her, in her greatness, she's reduced to the antithesis to ultimate evil. You have the confrontation between two people who had the potential for greatness, one turned away, and their descendants conflict. But that's Goliath is Jewish. What's that? I mean, the Goliath is Jewish. No. Uh, not necessarily. If she, it, oh yeah, if if Orpah, if that's true, if Orpah's conversion was was legitimate and held, that's a question. So what? And if he was Jewish, so what? Lemaynaf Kamina. The uh, yeah. Was his father a Um Rus nevertheless remains loyal. She stays by she stays by Naomi. She says ki el asher telchi elech to the where you go I go uvasher telini alin wherever you lie I will lie ami your nation is my nation uh elokai your God is my God she says Shimshon comes from the tribe of Dan Dan he judges Am Yisrael for twenty years he is. He is an exceptional figure on almost every level. He was the Gunal Hador. Uh, he was very alone, though. Nobody, and, and, and he never took executive privilege. Nobody, he never asked anybody to fetch him something. He was a very much an independent agent, um, sometimes to his detriment. His base team, the Gemara describes on the level of Moshe, of Aaron's, of Shmuel's. He's on this very, very high level. He was from birth a Nazir, a Nazarite. Uh, extraordinarily high level, but the mission Sota also, he's, Chazal said really harsh things about him too, says that the eyes that led, led him astray, how, how did his eyes lead him astray? Opan, anybody in Opan here? What's the, what's the operative word that we learned today? No, Histaklus. Histaklus. He looked the girls, uh, and they weren't from, even though they converted before he married them, they weren't from, he had problems with the women. In fact, there is a phenomenon in the modern world, it's not in the um, DSM manual quite yet, but it is brought down as Shimshon Syndrome, which, mean, which refers to men who have weakness for girls, for women. Uh, and, and to a pathological level. To a pathological level. A DSM manual is a diagnostic statistical manual that, that health, mental health people use to, to categorize disease, mental health disease. So it didn't quite make there, but it's something called Tismonet Simshon in Hebrew. Samson syndrome. The, uh, you could say that. I don't know what that's a reference to, but okay. Uh, the, um, the Gemara uh, tempers the severity of the statement. They also note that he acted purely l'shem shemaim to infiltrate the police team. That's why he married these women in order to bring, in order to save the nation. He's brought down, and um, but he, his, his death is a victory for the Jews. He destroys the temple of Dagon in in uh, in, 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 the, in the Philistine heartland. Um, 
At the end of the period of the Shoftim, near the end of the 369 years that the Mishkan is located in Shiloh, we meet the great figure of Chana at the beginning of the book of Shmuel. Shmuel will be a, a Shofet. At the time, the Shofet in the Gadol Ador is Eli HaKohen. And she goes, she has a very sad heart. She's not had a baby. And she deeply wants a child. We read about her plight on Rosh Hashanah, no less. We read about all, many of the famous barren women of history. And she goes to Davin in Shiloh by the Mishkan. And um, we learn how to daven from Chana. Chazal and the Gemara Brachos actually derive. Am I going too quick? I know I'm throwing a lot of different stories at you. Again, this is history's greatest hits. It's not, it's not oversaturation. Fantastic. Great. So we learn to daven. It says, the Pasuk says, Rak svaseha naos lo nishma. Her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Um, we learn from this a bunch of halachas. You know what they are? Um, no. No, Shmona Sray comes later, much later. No, but when, she, how, how she, she was davening what will later be Shmona Sray, but you know in these days, all the way to the beginning of the second double period, there's no such thing as Shmona Sray. Shmona Sray was invented by the? The men of the Great Assembly. Before then, Tefillah, which is the mitzvah, the Arisa, was an automatic. The Jews, at this stage, Hashem's greatness was incandescent. It was in the air. You're living in times of prophecy. People opened up their mouths and tefillin naturally flowed out. Today, halavai, can you imagine such a world where you just daven naturally? That's why we need a Shimon to put the words in our mouth for us. But Kana was the emblem. We learned from her that tefillah, this sounds so basic, but this is the source, tefillah requires kavana. If you don't have intention, if you don't have kavana, you're not davening. You're moving your lips, you're going through the ropes, you're going through the motions, you're not davening. You have to daven with kavana. Um, we learned from her that you're us, it's us to daven when you're drunk. How do we know that? Because Ellie yells at her and says, he can't, she's so intense in her tefillah that he's not used to that. And he, he excoriates her. He also, the Gra brings this down. He misread the Urim and Tumim. He's got, he's Kohen Gadol. He has the Urim and Tumim on his, on his, on his Choshen Mishpat. And he gets a word that says that she was shikora, which technically in Hebrew means she was drunk. She corrects him. She said, no, no, I'm not drunk. You got the words mixed up in the Urim and Tumim. It doesn't say Shikora, invert the letters. It was really Kisara. I'm weeping like Sarah, who is also barren like me. Kisara instead of Shikora. Same letters, different words. She corrects him. Uh, I have all this. Anybody interested in this one? I have a long Divar Torah that I, I, I gave over in naming our youngest baby, Hannah. Um, we also learned that it's usher to sit within Dalad Amos with people davening, something that people aren't so makpid here. You should be careful not to walk near somebody who's davening. Uh, they're in the presence of the Shechina. And many, many others. Go look in the Gemara Brachos on Lamed Aleph, Lamed Aleph. Um, she davens tearfully that her son should be born. She should have a son. If she does, she promises, like Shimshon's parents, that she will designate him as a Nazir, which means he's gonna, his life is going to be dedicated to serving Hashem. She makes good on her promises after her co-wife, Panina, had taunted her, Hashem Shemayim, had taunted her all this time, saying, have you knitted a son for your, uh, knitted a sweater for your, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have any children, do you? Um. <clears throat> Uh, Penina used to say, um, as way of trying to go to her to Davin Morshtar, um, finally, Hannah has a son. She names him Shmuel. Hashem heard. Shmuel. Hashem hears my, hears my tefillah. And she dedicates it to Hashem. She sends him right to Davin. And it's her greatest joy to do so because she knows it's all about serving Hashem. And he becomes an apprentice to Elia Cohen himself. 
And, and the boy goes by his side. Shmuel will rise up and be one of the great Shoftim and Nevi'im. In fact, he's, he's, he's seen a second to Moshe Rabbeinu and, and actually third uh, to Yeshaya HaNavi as, as a Navi, one of the greatest Nevi'im of all time. He authors he author some of the great books of the Tanakh. What did Shmuel author? Oh, Malachi? That's Yirmiyahu HaNavi. Yirmiyahu is much later. Shmuel, appropriately enough, he offers Shmuel. Right, what else? No, think about it. We've mentioned them all today. Shoftim and, uh, and, and, and Rus are all from Shmuel. Um, and, uh, and, and he was, he was such, on such a high level. Under Shmuel's leadership, the Jewish people enjoy a Balshuva movement. Education is reformed. He goes around and he won't, he, his, his quality, the Gemara tells us, he doesn't like to take free handouts. Even though he lives much of his life on the road because he's trying to educate all of Amistrael, he, he's, he's, got, he's a man of independent means and he carries his home with him. Even though he was based just north of Yushalayim in Mitzpah, uh, he's his own self-made man and he, 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 he doesn't rely on handouts and assistance. So he goes and teaches Torah and revitalizes the Jewish people and it's a great time to be alive, a great time in, in, for Am Yisrael at the very end of the period of the Shof, of the Shof team. The, um, he has two sons named Chofni and Pinchas. The Gemara makes the same thing about them as it does about a lot of misunderstood Siddiquim in history that Misha Omer, it's the same Gemara on Shabbos, Misha Omer, I said, we quoted this yesterday, Ashi, you asked about this recently, right? Misha Omer, Shechofni, Pinchas Chatu, anybody who says that they sinned, Eino Elato is mistaken. It appears that they sinned, the Pasuk seems pretty harsh on them, but here's a basic lesson. Get this down, please. Let's say you're spaced out all today, here's this one, one idea that's very valuable. Never read text of the Bible, of the Tanakh, at face value. You'll almost certainly misunderstand it. I'm a tour guide. I have a book. I'm actually with other tour guides who take out, they go out on the road and they take a Bible in hand, which is fun to do, and they go to a place, they go to Shiloh, and the guide Shiloh is one of my favorite places in Eretz the guide, and they'll just read the Psukim and explain it based on the Psukim. You do not understand the Psukim without Chazal. The Torah was given as a written Torah and an oral Torah. We talked about this. And if you don't understand what Chazal is saying, you miss the point half the time. So in this case, they're saying Chofni and Pinchas appear in the Pesukim to be uh, sort of negligent uh, in, their, in their observance of mitzvahs, but they were not. They were big tzaddikim who made mistakes, but they were minor mistakes. They didn't discipline their assistants, the Gemara tells us. And they, um, they also make a ter- terrible error. They take the Aron Kodesh. See, the Aron Kodesh is located necessarily in the area of the Mishkan. What's inside the Aron Kodesh? Uh, at this stage uh, in history, both sets of mm-hmm. uh, meaning the original two. broken set that our, that Moshe breaks on the way down from Arsene, plus the a replacement set. Right at this point, that's it. That's it. Oh, plus the Sefer Torah. No, but, isn't there also a tube of mud? There's also later, 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 later. That all comes later. Right now, that's what there is, and they take it out. They're not supposed to, but they take it out to battle against the Plishtim. The Plishtim you hear about a lot. They're the big bad enemies of the Jews throughout this much of this period. Uh, they take it out to battle against the Plishtim. Bad idea. They're defeated in a battle in a place near Rosha Ayin today. Uh, you only just said us there, but uh, the uh, near Rosha Ayin today in Izbit Charta is the archaeological site, and they die and lose the Aaron Kodesh. The Plishtim steal it to their, at their own peril, I should warn you, because when they bring the police team home, they put it in the temple of Dagon, and they come in, and their god is, is, is fallen over. And then they put the god back up again, and the next day they come down, and the god is this time smashed into pieces when it's in the presence of the Aron Kodesh. And then they break out, the police team break out in what's called Tchorim, they have what is translated as hemorrhoids, but it's some kind of disease, and then they're infested with Achbarim, rats, and then they know oh, this Aaron Kodesh is bad luck. So they move it from place to place, from, from Ashdod to Gat, from Gat to, uh, to Ekron. And finally, they say, we're not going to keep this anymore. So they take it to the Jews of 
Where does Yamakodesh go? Not yet? Soon? No, no, no. They first take it to the Jews of Beit Shemesh, near Shemesh. And the Jews there, with the best of intentions, make a terrible mistake because they look inside in their zeal to so excited to get the Aaron Kodesh back and what happens to them, and it's not quite the fate that the Nazis meet in the end of, of, of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm melting, right? That's not exactly what happens, but rather they get hemorrhoids and rats themselves. Tyrim and Achbarim infest them, and the people who look in died, uh, and it's a bad scene. So they take the Aaron Kodesh instead of Beit Shemesh, which is not worthy of having them, and take them to Kiryat yeah. Yarim, Telstone, the penultimate point of the Kodesh, and there the Jews know how to keep treated with Kavod, and it stays there for 20 years until later on we'll get to this with David's institution line. Actually, it makes a pit stop in the meantime. Um, so that's the story of the Aaron Kodesh. Don't confuse it with the Mishkan, which is still in Shiloh for the, for the moment. Yes, go ahead, Alex. And we've lost all of these things forever. Well, since you're jumping ahead, I'll jump ahead with you since we're doing a crash course in history. Um, the Aron Kodesh eventually makes its way into the Beis HaMikdash. It's in the Kodesh Kodesh, in the Holy of Holies, throughout the entire period of the First Temple. Then there's a Machlokas. Look it up in the Mishnah in Yuma. It's a Machlokas Tanaim and later on a Machlokas Amarayim. One of two possible fates. Only one of two possible fates. Did I not say this? I thought I said this the other day, but I'll say it again. I think I did. So one of the fates is, let's be clear about it, one of the fates is, is it really, I mean, again, Indiana Jones is still looking for it, so we can too. The, um, and he's looking all the wrong places. The, um, it's, it's A, taken by, I did say this, because it's taken by the Kazdim out to Babylon, and it's there, and I mentioned that it's there together with the rest of Saddam Hussein's weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and, or the other alternative, and this more, more, more engaging one, the one that I think is a little bit more viable, and that is that it was buried by the holy um, Yoshiawa Melech, one of the last kings, um, anticipating the destruction of the first temple, not wanting it to fall into the hands of the, of the pesky Babylonians, and so he buries it in the maze-like area underneath Harabais. And that's where it sits still today, and I believe it's probably there. With a lot of other good treasures that I'm going to get to soon. Including, including in the Aaron Kodesh, when the police team give it back to the Jews in Beit Shemesh, they present it with a gift, and you know what they give? You know what the gift they give? Great gift. Golden rats and hemorrhoids. Golden achbarim, and, and, and those are there too. Together, and that's what you're confusing with the, the flask of man and the, and the staff of Moshe and Aaron and many of these holy objects. The Mishnah all describes all these things. They're all buried under Harabais in their system today, and I can make it a struggle argument. Why don't we go? I make a strong argument, even though I can't prove it, that, the, um, that it's never been excavated since then. And so, so a couple of Gemaras that indicate, I'm ahead of myself, the couple of Gemaras that indicate that there were, I'm going to tell the story, the Jews, let's say, there were a couple of Balimum, Kohanim, who can't serve in the actual proper Avoda, but they do repair work around the base of Mikdash, were in the, it's in the southeast corner of the Dira, uh, the Dira Eitzim. Um, <coughs> let me do this for I have pictures. Uh, here is the ground plan of the base of Mikdash. Sukim that you say, if you haven't been there in 30 days, they may need them. Uh, and then here's the ground plan of the Beis Hamikdash, looking from looking from the east to the west, right? So somewhere over here, part, part of the picture got lopped up. In this corner, the northeast. Where's the Kotel? Where's the Kotel? Kotel is right here. Here's the Kotel Maravi. Okay. Uh, here's Harazesim. Yeah. So in this corner, the Gemara tells us that a couple of Kohanim were digging around there, and they were they were they were kind of doing repairs, and they, one of them noticed, "Ooh, look at that! One of the um, stones in the plaza was uneven." So he goes, "He's oh, it kind of comes up here. Wow! Ooh, look down there. Wow! Ooh, maybe the Aaron Kodesh is there." And before he could even say anything, a fire from underground comes up and consumes both of them. Oops! Uh, and they're gone. 
Okay, so be careful digging down there. Arguably, from that time to the modern period, let's do a quick rampage through history. After the, this was, um, this was in the Second Temple period. Second Temple is destroyed by the Romans. Uh, the Romans come in, they make it uh, a place at Judenrein. Jews can't go there. Uh, Capture uh, later on. The Byzantine make it. It's dumping ground of the old city. Nobody's there. Nobody's dug. Nobody's nobody's even nosing around. The Jews are not in. Jews need, need not apply. Are not welcome. Um, the Arabs come in and conquer Yerushalayim in 638 in the modern period. Period. They could care less. They're not historically oriented people. Even though they take over our Temple Mount as their holy site, um, but they never excavate down there. It's just not something they ever did. They, they weren't they, even until today. They're historically incurious. Not that they're anti-intellectual, but it's just not a not a part of their uh, of their intellectual pursuit. Um, they were the dominant powers. What's that? Yeah, it's just not there. It's not in their purview. You can see this culturally. It's not something they ever pursued. The, um, it, you had the various Muslim rulers from the Umayyads to the, to the Abbasids to the Fatimids, and then you had the Crusaders taking over. The Crusaders never excavated down there. After the Crusaders come in, you had the, you had the uh, Mamluks, you had the, Ayub, excuse me, you had the Ayubids, and then you had the Mamluks, and then the Ottomans, and nobody ever dug down there. They weren't there. It was all the backwater in the Ottoman period, taking over the British mandate. There's some stuff going on under the British. Uh, there's all kind of legends, but they never found anything under there. And then when you get already to the to the uh, then Jordan gets it in 48, Six Day War, 1937, 1967, and um, then the Moshe Dayan, the Minister of Defense, gives the keys to the kingdom to the Temple Mount to the Muslim Waqf. I think so. And, uh, well, you know what, in many ways it's a good decision, because a lot of Jews are ruining the day that he gave the kids to the walk. What are they doing up there? We've been exiled for 1900 years. They're a holiest place in the world. Israel. The Muslims don't even, never historically even saw it as important until, until the Jews saw it was important. Um, but, you know, it's all for the best. I would add, this is my own editorial comment, but it's not just mine, it's my rabbis also teach like this, and I think it makes sense. Uh, and that is the following. I think it's probably down there. He had a lot of other good things, including including a fiery lion cub, which is a story I'm going to tell soon, but not, not now, uh, and a bunch of other good artifacts. Um, if the Israeli antiquities authority would go down and excavate, they would find a labyrinthine maze of tunnels underground that people have actually indicated are there. Uh, there's reason to believe that there are people who are digging right now, uh, who are trying to get into those tunnels. Um, no, I'm talking about I'm talking about certain Jews living in the old city. And uh, all, all clandestine. You don't know this, not either. The uh, and the, the, um, in any case, if we were to go there and the Israelis were to find it, they would claim possession because the, the law is that every artifact historically belongs to the Israel Antiquities Authority, and they would take the Aaron Kodesh. And after all the fanfare and all the tourism, uh, um, you know, uh, opportunities, they would put it in a glass box in the museum. And as we discovered with the people of Beit Shemesh, that's not the way you treat the Aaron Kodesh. Bad things happen to people who mistreat the Aaron Kodesh, and therefore. Baruch Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch in his own wisdom, knows when the, when the Aaron Kodesh is coming back, when the Jewish people are worthy of it, and uh, we'll patiently wait until then. B'chol yom Yeah. Two questions, quickly. Does the, uh, does the that was the really not an intended the, uh, tangent. I, I have the period of shuffling to get through. Yeah, go ahead. Does the Kedusha of the Kodesh Kodesh, uh, does it extend internally upwards and downwards? So if you were to... to Good you question. Carry, would you get cards? If you were to dig it around that one. And, and then I don't know if a person's Tmei Mesa would get Kares, it's, it's certainly an issue. Don't try it at home, kids. Second, yeah, second question, go quickly, because I have more to do today. Second one, how do we know that those two, I don't know if they were Tanaim, that got burned by the No, just two puzzles. Uh, oh, Bali Mum right, Kawani. Right, right, right. So how do we know that, how do we know the whole exchange here? They had burnt Chris, we have no... Oh, the Gemara says. Gemara tells it. Where's the Gemara? How's the Gemara know? Oh, the Gemara, we'll get to that too. The Gemara knows everything. Everything it says is reliable. Have, like, it's not a history book. Like, uh, it's not a history book, but it's reliable. It was written by Ruach Hakodesh by people who are retaining all these traditions and all these stories are meant to are, are part of our mis- collective Masara. It's as authoritative as any halacha that we learned today. But how, just 
Not that there's enough Kamina, but there's no reason to doubt it. If Chazal said it, that's about as authoritative, authoritative as it can get. Sure. Today, in a state of Tumas Mace, sure. You can't go there. A person knowingly go th- goes there is indeed. No, he, he, he's saying on the opposite side. Yeah, the side goes all the way down. down. Oh, on the other side? I don't know. Maybe. It may very well be. Who came on that first Arab Shabbos? And actually, I know a few of you were very disappointed you didn't get there. Who actually came and actually looked right up to the center? You got there? I, yeah, I yeah, saw it for a second. Exciting, right? I was one of the first ones, so I didn't get thrown out. Those police I just got scared. Some of you came up. I took you to the cotton market, and some of you actually walked right up here. You were, you were mamish right yeah, across the I was looking at those trees, and I, I saw the blue and green. I saw yeah. Yeah. Okay, a little bit more about Shmuel and Navi, and then we'll call it a day. The um, <coughs> Shmuel is the one who institutes two days for Rosh Hashanah. There's a lot of changes that stuck in, in Klai Yisrael. Um, and he is the one that, that presides over the Jews. I'm going to start this story, and we'll continue it tomorrow. When the Jews come, they want something. They want something to be like all the other nations, and that's why it's the downfall. They shouldn't want to be like all the nations. We have a Torah. We don't need to be like the nations. We don't need to imitate them. And they want a king. And he discourages them, but they stick with it. And the Kharish says, okay, you asked for it, but you know, uh, they don't realize that in many ways the monarchy, not David, David's a big tzaddik, and his family is, is, is going to be, the, they're going to be the source of the Mashiach, but in general, in many ways, the monarchy will ruin the nation. From Shlomo's wives, who introduced uh, certifiable Avodah into the Jewish people, uh, all the way to Yeruvam's rebellion and his two agolim that he builds in the north. Egel is, 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 um, is a golden calf that he builds, two of them in the, nor- in the northern kingdom when there's a split in the nation, all the way down to the various kings and, and their, and their Vodazara. Leading the Jews has never been an easy prospect. We are a, an Amkshe Orif, as we've mentioned. Um, he was a problematic individual in some ways, but he had a great, hit a great one-liner. Chaim Weitzman was asked by President Truman when the state was first founded, uh, he said, President Truman says, what is it like to be, he was the figurehead president, the president of Israel, you know, structurally is more like the Queen of England, doesn't do much, it's kind of a figurehead, yeah, so he was asked, what does it mean to be a president over the, over, anyway, he, uh, Truman asked Weitzman, what do you, what is it to be a president of the, of the state of Israel, so Truman, the Weitzman's clever response was, Mr. President, you preside over 150 million citizens, I preside over two and a half million presidents, uh, yeah. So with that, with that, we'll talk about what the implications are of kings and actually some of the famous kings. Because Rosh Hashem come tomorrow. <laughs>